Well, good morning. My name is Joel Lingenfelter. I'm the executive pastor here. So it's my privilege to bring the word this morning, and uh, we'll be using quite a bit of scripture. So if you don't have a Bible, put your hand up, and our usher to, ushers would be happy to get you one. Um, if you are more the electronic type, in the Uversion Bible app, there's an events tab. And in that tab, you'll see Lancaster Evangelical Free Church come up. Click on that, and it will take you right to all the scripture we use today. So our series is called Thriving in Babylon, and our focus is on how we can live for God even when the culture around us denies him. Now, we've talked a lot about Daniel, and for good reason, as the book we're reading bears his name, uh, but today we're going to talk about the other three princes of Judah that are first introduced in chapter one, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, chances are that many of you don't recognize those names, and that's because we generally know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I'm not sure why we use their Babylonian names, and we always call Daniel by his Hebrew name, uh, but maybe it's because their names work so well together, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's easy to say, like Larry, Moe, and Curly, right? <laughs> or Larry, my brother Daryl, and my other brother Daryl, right? Or, or maybe even Tinkers to Everest to Chance, if you're a baseball fan, right? They're those are people that we think of together. We never think of them separately. But you know, each of these men, Hananiah, um, see I've already forgotten that Mishael and Azariah, each of these young men were individuals, right? They had hopes, dreams, ideas of what their future would look like. And then their world was turned completely upside down when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem and they carried off some of those royal princes to Babylon. Now Babylon is a long way from Jerusalem. If you know the Middle East, Israel's kind of in the middle there between those two bodies of water, and you can see Jerusalem if you can read it. Uh, Babylon is all the way over there uh, to the right. It's a long way from home. Uh, and like Daniel, each of these young men are pressed into the service of a king they hated, serving a nation that had taken them captive. However, just like Daniel, each of them were standouts in the service of the king, particularly bright and talented. Daniel chapter 1, verse 20 says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. They thrived in Babylon, and under the leadership of Daniel, the three would not waver from what God had called them to be. Now, if you were with us last week, Pastor Tony, Pastor Tony talked about how Daniel rose to prominence after God gave him the content and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And as a result of that, he was elevated to a very high position in the royal court of the king. And when you're in high positions, you have opportunity. And one of the things that Daniel did was made the request that the other three princes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would be made administrators over the province of Babylon. Now, they were certainly capable, based on what we learn in chapter 1, but it's inarguable that Daniel's position uh, assisted their very quick rise. Now, one thing I've noticed is that throughout all of human history, whenever someone is elevated, others are jealous, right, and seek to bring them down. Ancient Babylon is no different. So let's see what happens when our three intrepid heroes, who I refuse to call your shack, my shack, and a bungalow, 
um, what happens to them. So we're going to go to Daniel chapter 3. Uh, in the Bibles we handed out, it's page 828. And let's read along. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image of that king, of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, "Nation and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music." You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship him will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here's the situation, right? The king has set up a large 90-foot-tall gold statue. Now, there's no doubt it's impressive, but we don't actually know what it was a statue of, right? It might have been a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, as we see here. It might have been a statue of one of the gods he worshipped. It might even have been a large chocolate bunny. Like, we don't actually know <laughs> what it was a statue of. That is a great image, by the way. The text doesn't tell us exactly what it is, only that it was 90 feet tall, made of gold, and very important. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Daniel, who's absent in this story, they could not obey God and also bow down to this statue. The prohibition to bowing to idols is in nothing less than the Ten Commandments that we find in Exodus 20 says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God's people are not to worship anything but him. And bowing to an idol is an act of worship even when you're only doing it because the king says you have to. So this creates an impossible situation for our trio of outstanding Jewish princes. They serve the king, but they serve God first. And the king has demanded they do something that God has forbidden. So remember when I opened the story by talking about jealousy? This is where that comes in. In Daniel 3.8 it says, At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Now if you're using the NIV, there's a little footnote, and it says the word Chaldeans. See, the Chaldeans were a people group that were conquered by Babylon and assimilated into their culture and society. 
In other words, they were just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were captives who were trying to make their way up the ladder of power in a foreign land. But unlike our three righteous dudes, these guys had no problem worshiping whatever King Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to worship. And this presented an opening. They resented these Jews who rose to prominence so quickly in the kingdom. Scripture does not tell us why Daniel's not part of this story. But my hunch is that he was so important to the king after his wisdom in chapter 2 that they knew Daniel's untouchable. We can't take him down. But these guys were elevated as a favor to Daniel. They're vulnerable. This is somebody we can go after. They were not just jealous of the success of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They wanted to see them fall. They wanted them out of the picture. So they approached the king. Let's continue in verse 9. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down on the ground and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, it's easy from this side of history to read these texts and really not consider the context. But I think it's critical to look at the situation these young men found themselves in. Nebuchadnezzar was considered the greatest king in the history of Babylon. He was a warrior. He secured great military victories, possibly as early as a teenager. He was deeply committed to the gods of Babylon. He even served in building the temple of Marduk, known as Bel, right, the national god of Babylonia. Under his leadership, Babylon took control of all of Syria, it even secured military victories against Egypt, which was the reigning superpower of the world at that time. But he didn't just stop at victories. He actually invaded Egypt, seeking to increase the territory of Babylon. He was a builder. He was credited with, with building the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He was an administrator over a powerful empire and a fighting man who led his armies into battle. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was unquestionably one of the most feared and powerful men in the entire world. And he wasn't casual about the worship of gods. We tend to get the Roman perspective where the Romans just added gods to their collection. That wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. He took this seriously. 
our three intrepid heroes are face to face with him, having openly defied his orders, and they've been called onto the carpet to answer for their offense. There's only one way that anyone who's been gathered to witness this expects it to go, and that's for these three young princes to fall prostrate on the ground in the worship of the golden idol. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Now, I really like the wording that another translation uses here because I think it picks up some nuances that are, are important. The NSB says it this way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. We don't answer to you. Now think about that. Three young men taken from their homeland, emasculated, forced into service of the king, face to face with one of the most powerful men in the entire world, and their reply is, we don't answer to you. You don't even merit a reply. This is not just refusing his orders. This is probably the most offensive thing they possibly could have said to Nebuchadnezzar. They've effectively just told him he doesn't matter at all. Why would they say such a thing? Let's look at verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man, a mighty man, a man who got what he wanted, even if he had to wipe out entire nations to get it. And he's just been told by three young punks that he does not matter, and they will not do what he says. Where did they get that courage? Where did that come from? Right? How, how could they do this? Well, just like Daniel... They know God, and they know what he has done. See, these young men grew up during the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah was the last righteous king of Judah. So I show on the screen just a little timeline to give you an idea that these young men were children, but 10, 11, 12, maybe as, as late as 13 years old uh, during that reign. Josiah was the king who found the book of the law, and instituted reforms that brought Judah back into the worship and knowledge of God. Now, Scripture tells us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were nobility. They were of the royal family. So they would have been front and center to what Israel, to what Judah was like when it was honoring God. They would have seen God's blessing, but more importantly, they would have heard the stories of how he brought them out of Egypt. They would have heard of the miracles. They would have heard the word of God being read and they would understand who he was. When they were carried off to Babylon, they became Daniel's closest friends, members of what Greeks would later call his oikos, right? That relational world of people that he spent his time with. And he absolutely modeled to them how to live for God. Last week, we saw that when Daniel needed to know the content and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, 
He went straight to these three guys and said, pray with me. Right? We need to seek the Lord for an answer here. So in short, these guys knew their Bible, I mean, such as it was, collection of texts at that point. They had observed how Daniel responded to crisis, and most importantly, they knew that the God they served was far more powerful than the very finite and mortal man standing in front of them. They knew that they had to answer to God first and any human second. They knew what God had done and the promises he had made. And even when they faced something impossible, God could save them, and Nebuchadnezzar could not. They knew God. They knew the character of God. And it's because of that hope that they didn't bow to the incredibly severe pressure to compromise their beliefs. The writer of Hebrews tells us the exact same thing for the exact same reasons. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we possess, for he who promised is faithful. God, the creator of the world, infinite, perfect, all-powerful, loving, wise, faithful God. It is in God that we have hope. Hope in the face of persecution. Hope in the face of difficulty. Hope in the face of death. We have hope because God loves us. Because he sent Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Because he made us co-heirs to the promises. No matter what you are facing in life right now, no matter what you're facing, no matter how big and how bad and impossible it seems, God is able to make it right in his time. Because whatever you are facing, even the rage of a very powerful king is insignificant next to the power of God. Insignificant. Now, I don't know exactly what parts of God's word and what texts these young princes would have been exposed to in the palace of Josiah, but I'm pretty sure they heard from the Psalms. And I'd like to read one over you this morning. I, I, I believe that this is something that they would have heard. And I would like you just to listen. Don't turn there. Don't read along. They would not have been able to read along. But we're going to read Psalm 71. I'd just like you to sit, listen, meditate. If you need to close your eyes, don't go to sleep. But if you need to close your eyes, just listen to the Word of God. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. 
for my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long. Though I know not how to relate them all, I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me. And to this day, I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, who is like you, God? Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, I whom you have delivered. My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long. For those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. Amen. It is with this hope and this confidence that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up to Nebuchadnezzar. They knew those words. They knew who God was. They knew what he promised. But notice something else that they said, something immensely important in verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. God's will is greater than ours. His purposes are eternal. As they faced death, certain death, at the hands of a powerful king if they disobeyed, they knew that whatever God chose to do, it would be better for them than if they turned away. They knew that the outcome would be one that would fulfill God's purposes and they were confident in the Lord and that his will was perfect. God gave them hope, and they knew that even in death they could trust him. Hope in the face of the impossible because of a God who could do the impossible. And the impossible he did. Let's resume the story in Daniel 3, beginning in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. 
So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. This is what it looks like when you defy and insult one of the most powerful men in the ancient world. He takes his strongest soldiers, he ties you up, and he throws you into a furnace that's so hot the people who threw you in died. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't regret for a moment his actions. He wants to see them instantly incinerated for their behavior. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, Now we've gone from one. Nebuchadnezzar has thrown everything he has. Has thrown everything he has at these young princes. And God has come to the rescue just as he said he would. Now much has been speculated as to the identity of the fourth person in the furnace. But all we have are Nebuchadnezzar's words, and he's a pagan polytheistic king who describes what he sees as a son of the gods. Sent to comfort them, or Jesus himself, sent to be by their side, does not change the fact that God has delivered them from an impossible situation, just as they said he would. Their hope has been fulfilled, and the end result is that God gets all the glory. You know, I've always wondered, if you were thrown into an incredibly hot furnace and God miraculously kept you alive, what would you do? And all Scripture says is they were walking around, which it doesn't seem like a great place to go for a walk, right? But, but I do think that they probably sang, and some of the ancient texts actually tell us that they sang. Consider the end of Psalm 71. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, I, whom you have delivered. My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long. For those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. Let's read on. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Now remember last week in chapter 2, after Daniel interpreted and explained his dream, he called God the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Now it was high praise. But after this encounter, he acknowledges that God is the most high God, even above his beloved Marduk. Right? Who is glorified in this moment? God. Who is praised? God. Who gets all of the credit? God does. And who deserves all of the glory? God. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. 
They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. This again speaks to Nebuchadnezzar's fire. I don't know about you, but I've always read this and kind of thought of it as like the king and these three guys in the furnace, right? But that's not what the text says. Nebuchadnezzar made an event. He's going to show what happens when you defy the king, and you do not defy the king. And so he's called a lot of people, a lot of important people, to put on a display to show how powerful he is. But God had other plans. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Now Nebuchadnezzar, remember when I said he took his, his faith seriously? He recognizes real power here. And he recognizes that he doesn't want to be on the wrong side. And therefore, I decree, decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the provinces of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar recognized that these men served a God who was far more powerful than he was. And that having people in his kingdom speak against God would be a bad idea. All of the powerful government officials who gathered to witness his power witnessed real power instead, the power of God saving those who love him. It was God who got all the glory, and everyone who saw or witnessed that event would never forget the moment they saw God save. The end of the story is often ignored, but I feel like the Chaldeans didn't exactly love the end result of this encounter. Right? Their attempt to eliminate the competition backfired, and those three men were elevated even further in the province of Babylon. I'm guessing that they're probably part of the group that will try to do the same thing to take down Daniel under a new king in chapter 6. But that's a sermon for another day. So what can we take away? Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We'll start in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, I feel like all four of these men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they must have had this tattooed on their forearms, right? Now, I know it wasn't written for another 600 years, but same Holy Spirit, right? So I just feel like this is how these guys live. They understood that if God is with us, who can be against us? Even Nebuchadnezzar, by far the most powerful man they would ever come in contact with, was nothing compared to God. If God is with us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The subjects of our message today face certain death from Nebuchadnezzar. But they did not bow. Instead, they placed their hope in a God who never fails. And Jesus hadn't even come yet. When faced with the power of God, Nebuchadnezzar could do nothing short of declaring that God is the most high God. And he is. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. There is no one like our God. Today, our story is even better than the one of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin, dying in our place. But the story doesn't end in the grave because we serve a risen Savior. Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death once and for all, and now nothing can separate us from his love if we accept him as our Savior. This is why we have hope. This is why we have a future. Because Jesus has saved us. Jesus has called us. And Jesus has made us his own. No one can condemn us. No one can separate us from his love, no matter what happens. If God is for us, who can stand against us? No one. No one. Let's pray.